With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kevin Foster, the host of Everything Ethics Talk Show, where we discuss ethics and compliance topics of interest to anyone concerned about ethics and ethical leadership. This broadcast will be available as a podcast in the near future. In the past episodes, we've talked about the importance of an ethical culture with the past GC of Bell South and Arthur Roberts Zaff, talked to other guests, including Jeff Sheehan about ethics and social media, and Dr. Valu Feltes about ethics and blockchain and AI. We also had a fabulous conversation with David Morgenstern about how white collar guys get on the wrong side of the law and criminal justice reform. This episode is brought to you by Business Ethics Advisors where we help leaders master ethical excellence and keep your employees on the bright side of the ethical line and out of prison. If maintaining an ethical culture is important to your organization, please check out our programs at businessethicsadvisors.com. Today we have as, um, as our um, topic, how will ethics and compliance functions change with COVID and work from home in 2021? Companies are increasingly reassessing risk and ethics and compliance with the changing dynamics of COVID and work from home. What trends should smart compliance ethics and ethics officers look forward to in 2021? I'm going to mute everybody. Um, today, our guest is Tom Fox, who is literally the guru of compliance and the guy who wrote the book on compliance with his one volume book, The Compliance Handbook, and an astonishing additional 19 books on business leadership, compliance, and ethics and corporate governance. Tom is also an active podcaster and blogger on compliance and ethics, and we welcome to um, to our show. Hey, Tom, welcome very much. Uh, welcome for being here. Really appreciate you joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. I guess I should turn my mic on. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm really the one that's honored to be with you. That's great. So, um, so Tom, well, I think we would like to like to start here. I think this is a very active conversation, but just kind of give us your um, your take. How do you think COVID and work from home is really changing the ethics and compliance functions? And what are you expecting to see in 2021? So, Kevin, the uh, you and I visited uh, a little bit on this uh, over a podcast and a uh, call or two, but one of the, uh, there are just innumerable changes that, uh, COVID-19 has brought to compliance and it's continuing to change. On March 15 or thereabouts when we all shut down, uh, I think everybody wondered, are we gonna make payroll? Uh, if we make payroll, where do we go there? And that obviously meant working from home. And that presented a lot of ethical challenges that perhaps we hadn't considered in the past. When you have a, a disparate workforce, how do you keep the, the level of values driven ethics up with uh, people and how do you communicate to people as we moved into uh, April and May uh, I think people began to worry a little bit about uh, burnout 
or Zoom fatigue or any of the other things that we had not really thought about. But it's a long-winded way of saying that our risks changed. And in the compliance world, when your risks change, that means you may need a new risk management strategy. I think you have been one of the people on the uh, uh, forefront of talking about the ethical challenges and the compliance challenges together with the ethical challenges presented uh, uh, new, new challenges, but also new opportunities. So how do you keep a workforce ethically engaged when you're not going to see each other? How do you uh, manage data protection, data privacy from a compliance perspective? How do you get your ethical messages across? Are there, conversely, are there new fraud or compliance risks because you're working from home? I think everyone recognized data privacy and data security, but uh, what about all of the uh, challenges that, uh, ethical challenges that may have been never really considered because everyone was together and, and everyone you know, basically saw each other and we could reinforce each other and we had access to internal controls and there was much more transparency. So the opaqueness of doing business increased. Uh, one of my favorite ones, uh, this actually happened to my wife. Um, one of the vendors uh, that she works with on a regular basis uh, called her up and said, we're, we're going to send you a gift uh, to your house. And it was a card for uh, 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 DoorDash or, or one of those delivery services. And she got it. And I said, is that above the limit you're allowed to receive from an active vendor? And, uh, but, and you know, that never would have happened if, if she'd been in the office. I mean, the vendor never would have done that. Uh, but yet they felt less constrained to do so because, you know, she was working from home. And I don't think it was, uh, you know, nefarious or fraudulent, but they probably they probably didn't know about the limit, but it was it was significantly above any other size gift she'd received. So uh, what does that mean? What are your challenges for conflicts of interest? You just have to think in a, in a wide variety of ways. But I think you've really helped me understand that there are strategies, tactics, and individual actions you can in, you can do around communications to help ethics, to help your values driven ethics and to communicate those and to put together new and different things. So the, the last thing I would like to kind of end with on this part is there are new opportunities and there are opportunities for communications. There's opportunities for podcasts. There's opportunities for short video clips. There's opportunities for animation in ways that uh, perhaps uh, corporations or corporate compliance officers had not thought about before. And yes, you can spend a lot of money producing a top quality product, but I think we have both learned that you can also uh, do things at a relatively low cost with some of the tech tools available now, starting with your iPhone. So uh, I think with every crisis, there's also opportunities. So there's opportunities to engage in ways that we hadn't before. And, and really perhaps the last point is mental health issues. Um, some people enjoy working from home. Uh, I'm one of those. Some people find it less enjoyable and more stressful as it moved from working to home, from home to perhaps living at work. And how do you balance that? Can you have work-life balance when you're working? Your job, your corporate position is in your home. So lots of different challenges, but also uh, lots of opportunities, I think, as well. Yeah, I think that um, the, work for, the whole work from home thing has really created a lot more pressures on people that... I'm not sure any of us really expected when this started with a lot of schools shut down and kids working from um, from home and having their own requirements for doing their classes online. And, you know, it's very easy for them to go, daddy, mommy, you know, help me with this, you know, drag me away from this, can't do this. And then you have, um, in some cases, roommate situations and people were talking about very confidential things at home and those people obviously are not, should not be privy to confidential work communications, but if you have roommates around, that creates a whole different um, factor. And um, we had a guest on our show a couple of weeks ago who was a compliance officer, uh, chief compliance officer at a high tech company. And they, um, even now, even the work from home, they're prohibiting their people from printing anything on their home printer which creates a whole new, um, you know, thing to, a whole new thing to deal with. 
that kind of surprised me too. I don't know whether they felt they didn't have control over it or exactly what the reason for that was. Wow. Yeah. But it really requires, I think, um, you know, for manager for managers um, to have a lot more empathy for their folks and really be able to reach out and um, create a line of communications they may not have before. And as you said, Tom, just might be able to get creative on how we outreach to people. I think that's going to be very, very important on how we do that. So the, uh, but Kevin, things have changed as well. And, and I talked about when we started back in March, April, and May, and as we moved into to June and even July, I was as naive as probably anyone thinking, well, you know, Q4, maybe uh, early 2021 will be back to normal. Uh, the thing will run its course. And that was something that I missed, as, like I said, as much as anyone. And to realize that we were going to be in the coronavirus health crisis, we were going to be in COVID-19 protocols. Uh, yes, we, we hope for a vaccine, and that's great that it's come out now, but we, we were looking at a much longer term. And the, the tactical thinking that you and I uh, engaged in in March and April and May, that needed to move to strategic thinking. And what are we going to do for the next 18 months? Uh, one of the best phrases I heard was uh, in an interview, uh, a fellow said, well, we've moved from uh, disaster recovery to business continuity to business as usual. And this is the new, uh, the new business continuity model is uh, disruptions that you or I perhaps can't foresee in a year or two years. And how are you going to respond to those? Do you have the agility to respond to those? And from the ethical perspective, are the employees sufficiently trained and given the corporate value so that when a new opportunity, when a new uh, risk, when a new situation arises, uh, can you pivot uh, to do business, but with maintaining the same ethical values that you had as far back as when we were all in the office, whenever that was, uh, but through this year and going forward. So the, the uh, uh, changes uh, that we have engaged in are, are not ending and the, the other kind of thing that I enjoyed hearing was uh, one fellow said to me, uh, a guy named Dan Goodwin said, Tom, we've had three to five years of uh, change and evolution in this year. And that really struck me uh, because I said we were moving at either exponential speed or warp speed. Um, and uh, I think that component is here for us as well. And that's why having your values-based ethics is so critical because if you have the base set, you can not only pivot in a nimble, agile manner, but if a, a new risk or opportunity arises, you have that same set of values as you address it. Well, I think that's very true and thank you for bringing that up. One thing that I've really been harping on is the, um, I think the imperative for, um, especially now for um, the companies to keep on reminding their employees about the importance of ethics, just like you were talking about with your, um, your wife. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, probably taking a look at the code of conduct that um, training that we have in corporations. Uh, once the year, once a year, one hour, once a year, it's no longer really beneficial to the company. I mean, this is all changing quite a bit. And we've seen not just the work from home, but we've also seen the social disruption and the importance of diversity in the in the workplace and um, and um, and social social justice. So it hasn't just been COVID; it's been other factors as well. And as you say, Tom, I mean things are changing pretty um, pretty quickly, and um, we as um, you know American business men need to be able to keep up those changes and make sure our employees are all kept up with those changes too. So employees really need to have ethics at the top of their mind. And then obviously the compliance officers need to keep on reminding, um, you know, um, everyone down the line what their compliance duties are. It really hasn't changed. It's just changed on how we are approaching it more than anything else. Bill, you brought up a really important point and that is uh, the social changes that have occurred this year. Obviously, uh, social uh, justice, um, uh, Black Lives Matter, diversity and inclusion, all of those topics are much more front of mind 
And they're not only front of mind for people like you and me, they're not only front of mind for business leaders, but they're front of mind for business customers. And customers are demanding, uh, if not change, they're certainly demanding companies to address some of these issues in ways that they had not done before. Uh, and um, the, the one that is, uh, well, I can't say that one is more important, but I really, in, I'm a lawyer, so words matter to me. And the <laughs> phrase diversity inclusion uh, really resonates me, with me for the following reason. Um, I started my professional life in the 80s. And in the 80s and 90s, we had diversity. And we had the EEOC, we had Title VII. Uh, you and I have both grown up with that, Civil Rights Act, all of those 60s acts. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, we will allow you to come work with us. We're going to open the door and we're not going to discriminate against you. And that's that was it. Now it has evolved to inclusion. And the word inclusion to me is so important because it moves beyond simply we're going to open the door, but we're going to welcome you and we're going to welcome your difference, whether that difference is racial, whether that difference is uh, gender orientation, uh, whether that difference is religion, whatever that difference is going to be, we are going to bring not simply bring you in, but embrace that uh, as a part of us now. And I find that word inclusion to more fully describe for me what I thought was going to happen uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but now uh, companies are having to have those discussions and their customers are demanding inclusion. It, it's inclusion at the boards of directors. It's inclusion at senior management. It's inclusion in middle management. It is uh, giving everyone not just equal opportunity, but including them in all of the things that make a successful pro- professional career. And so uh Ethics and compliance officers are part of that discussion. Sometimes it falls to them uh, because it's even seen as, as broader than human resources, which has been traditionally the, the diversity uh, owner. But now with these other conversations that are going on, we have a much broader remit. And is, a, is one of your values-based ethics that we are not diverse, but we are inclusive? And are we going to have those discussions and how do you have those discussions when people are working from home? Do you have a Zoom call? Do you have a one-on-one? I mean, those are those are all things that, that you're probably getting questions on. But I find that word inclusion wrapped around the social justice movement, wrapped around Black Lives Matters to have added not simply a, a level of complexity, but also a level of opportunity. So uh, you're absolutely right to bring that up. And uh, it's not simply uh, we're working from home. It's it's probably everything uh, that we hadn't thought about or, or uh, hadn't really considered as a remit for ethics and compliance professionals now really is. That is just so true. And in my discussions with some um, in-house counsel, I'm discovering that um, these companies are really um, are taking a hard line on their outside counsel, making sure that they meet all the um, inclusion and diversity um, requirements that the companies are now demanding on the lawyers that are being assigned to work for um, work for them. So this is going to go up to um, almost anyone who's doing business with a corporation and be able to um, flesh out their um, inclusion and diversity, um, you know, principles and be able to prove it. And you're certainly right. Customers are demanding it. I think at all levels it has become very more important which is really even beyond what we were just uh, talking about last year with ESG. ESG is now taking a more wider um, approach than what we would have thought of um, even just just a year ago. Don't you think, Tom? Uh, you're absolutely right. And let me pick up on your point about the, uh, the law firms and corporate uh, law departments. Uh, if we use and focusing once again on those words, diversity and inclusion, this is not simply you're going to have a minority on your team. This is not simply you're going to have a woman on your team. Uh, this is that woman, that racial minority, uh, that gender uh, person. Uh, they're going to participate and they're going to be a part of the team and they're going to lead discussions. They're going to present to me as a general counsel. They have to be included in the team that is working on my, your, your team working on my project. So it's that uh, I've read lots of uh, commentary by GC types that uh, it's not window dressing. It's not just having that person 
there so you can check the box that they have to be included. So I even find the word inclusion as powerful from the customer's perspective. Uh, and ESG, um, I don't know if we've moved from ESG to sustainability, but it's so um, far, uh, you're, but you're absolutely right. Uh, we've come so far, uh, probably three to five years in ESG as well. And now it's, it's, it's not simply an investment strategy. It's part of your marketing to your customer base, to, to all of your stakeholders, to your local community, your customer base, to your own employees, to your boards of directors, and to your shareholders and others who might be interested in you know, evaluating your co- company for either investment opportunity or, or a purchase acquisition. So um, you have to have uh, an ESG program and you have to have auditable metrics around your ESG. Uh, last month, I uh, uh, interviewed a woman who was the chief ethics and compliance officer at Tenneco, and now she's the uh, chief ethics and compliance and sustainability officer. So she has been given that entire ESG and sustainability remit at the EVP level, which shows that's how far we've come. Yeah, it's very significant. Um, I have a um, family member who's the chairman of a bank, and um, he was telling me that they have a chief inclusion officer now, um, diversity inclusion officer at their bank now that reports um, up to the board. Which I think is also something else that we're going to we're going to be seeing in the future. Besides having chief ethics officers and chief compliance officers report up to the board, we're going to see that going up to the board level. I believe. What do you think about that, Tom? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, boards of directors have much more pressure on them now. They are the stewards of the corporation, and uh, in uh, over the past few years, I've talked about having a, a compliance expert on the board, but now it's it's much broader than that. It, it's sustainability, it's diversity and inclusion, it's data privacy, it's data protection, and boards find themselves uh, really behind the eight ball. And they were behind the eight ball, I think, largely because boards are typically the most insular group there is, um, white males and mm-hmm. people like us. And the reason boards have people like us is they bring their friends on the board. They bring other former CEOs who tended to be white males uh, because that's the way the system was run. So it was sort of a self-fulfilling, not prophecy, but self-fulfilling circle. And the state of California has led the effort to have gender diversity by statute. And I think uh, companies now are, are recognizing they need a diverse and inclusive set of board members uh, to help tackle some of these issues. And if I could even add the regulatory requirement, we've now seen the regulators catch up uh, to where the Supreme Court of Delaware is. And uh, for those who may not know, the Supreme Court of Delaware is really the arbiter of uh, board decisions in the United States because most corporations are formed in Delaware, so disputes go to the Delaware Supreme Court. And this year they had a major decision around compliance that said you must have an active board compliance program. And that's uh, a case out of Texas called Bluebell Ice Cream. Well, that's easily, you can see now that they've said compliance, they're gonna say diversity and inclusion. Uh, They're going to say gender diversity. They're going to say data protection, data privacy. They're gonna say all of these things a board is the steward of and a board must not only manage, but we're moving towards having that uh, subject matter expertise all the while having a more diverse board uh, as well. But we're also seeing with the stock exchanges too. In uh, order to maintain your listing, you're going to have to be able to do it. I mean, I can't think of a more heavier <laughs> hammer to have than to delist a, a company because they're not, um, um, they're not able to, um, to keep up with the time, so to speak. You're absolutely right. And you really hit the nail uh, on the head. NASDAQ came out and, and, and said this. And so once again, from the, the lawyer perspective in me, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has to approve NASDAQ rules so that they become a, a SEC regulation. Well, you can bet your bottom dollar that the Biden, Biden SEC will approve that. So now it's an SEC regulation. Now you have the U.S. regulator saying it's not 
uh, you know, Kevin and Tom, or perhaps a suggestion. Uh, this is a regulation by the SEC. And so that's going to uh, garner a lot of attention and drive this. And uh, if I can maybe uh, talk about some of the regulatory changes uh, in compliance, I know you've written about this, Kevin. We had uh, a 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs by the U.S. Mm -hmm. Department of Justice. The yeah. significance really in the ethical world is the following. Last year was when the original evaluation was released, and it was the first time ever the Department of Justice focused on corporate culture. They didn't use the word ethics. They said corporate culture. But when, when chief compliance officers hear culture, they understand that means value-driven ethics. And what is the ethical culture of your company? It's not, and it was, how, do you have an ethical culture? Have you measured it? Have you assessed it? Uh, have you uh, managed uh, risk around that? Have you continually improved it? Uh, have you trained on it? Have you communicated about it? Are you doing this with your third parties? Well, that was brought forward in 2020. And now the Department of Justice says, okay, let's see the numbers. Let's see the data which backs up you asserting you're an ethically or values-based, ethically driven business. Uh, many people did not think you could measure ethics. Many people did not think you could measure culture. Well, now the Department of Justice is saying you have to, and that is the minimum part of a best practices compliance program. So I think that's a, a huge evolution and it's continued. The significance though, this is once again, this is not Tom and Kevin saying this, this is the regulators saying this. And this means you have to have it. So when you kind of couple these things, you think about, well, the DOJ has said you have to have ethics-driven uh, cultural values. You have the Securities and Exchange Commission saying uh, you have to have um, a diverse board uh, to maintain your list listing. Um, I think that is uh, where we're going to get a big jump in change, Kevin. I think so, too. And also on that, that guidance, I really want to stress that they're requiring that at all levels of the organization, not just the upper level, um, but all levels of the organization. So it's really incumbent on the upper management to be able to train lower level managers to maintain that ethical culture all the way down to the, the lowest levels of the employee, because it's often those lower levels that are meeting with the customers and with vendors and um, are the face of the corporation, so, um, so to speak. So it becomes really more, um, really does become more incumbent on the managers to be able to train all the middle level managers on their company's corporate culture. And, you know, we know we have a lot of turnover. Companies are turning over all the time. So the whole ethical training and, and incorporating the ethical culture into new employees has got to be an ongoing thing. It just cannot be this once a year type thing, or maybe not even just your, um, you know, a couple of paragraphs in your um, in your onboarding that is being addressed. I mean, this is something that has got to be taken seriously at all levels of the corporation. And I'm not exactly sure how you do it outside of um, training and communication, but I think that's a good start is having just up-to-date trainings and have that continually done and then communicate, communicate and communicate because lower level employees are gonna look at the upper level employees and see how, what the upper level employees are doing and they're gonna mimic them. They're gonna say, hey, look, if, if my boss is going out on these junkets, I guess that's okay with me too. If my boss is able to buy a $500 bottle of wine on his expense report, I guess it's okay for me to do that as well. I mean, the lower level employees are going to continue to take um, their clues from upper level, but um, that goes with every level in the organization. Well, Kevin, you actually answered your own question. How do you do it? <laughs> it's, it's tone at the top. And if there's, there's one thing that's more incumbent, there is no more one thing that's incumbent, is having good ethical values modeled by your senior leadership. You're absolutely right. If... Um, the region manager in, far, I mean, you name the region, uh, engages in unethical conduct, but he makes his numbers and he's never sanctioned at all. He gets his bonus, he gets his raises. People are going to notice that. Are the people who are promoted, are they the ones who, who uh, make their numbers? Are they the ones who uh, do uh, business ethically and in compliance? Is there a difference? 
and if uh, people are spending $500 for a bottle of wine and that somehow magically gets approved, people are going to notice that. So uh, it, you're absolutely right. It starts with the top and it has to be um, cascaded down through the organization, particularly in the middle management level, all the way down. Yeah. It was actually pretty refreshing over the last couple of years to see um, a lot of CEOs and EVPs really being called on the carpet and being forced to resign because of their own ethical lapses. You know, you kind of you kind of wonder what they were thinking when they were engaging in this activity and putting their um, seven-figure incomes um, or maybe even eight-figure incomes on the line for um, – to engage in a fear with a coworker or to um, somehow cross the line in some way that they should have known better. You know, one of my favorite examples is that Apple attorney who was responsible for a proven um, insider stock trading who got nailed with insider shock sale himself. And now he's going forth and trying to make the argument that that he wasn't really guilty of insider stock trading, that there was a technical loophole. Well, this is the problem with rule-based ethics is that somebody who's got a law degree can always come back and say, well, I may have gone all the way up to the line, but I didn't really cross it. Well, guess what, bud, you did. You shouldn't, you knew better, you should have known better, but you decided to do it anyway. Why'd you do that? And we're just not gonna let you get get away with that. And I guess the the thing that uh, struck me the most about those those events, we had a series. We had the uh, the CEO at uh, McDonald's uh, got caught. We had the the former chief compliance officer at Apple is alleged to have paid a bribe in uh, the state of California uh, to get uh, permits to have concealed carry uh, handguns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had two huge scandals in uh, one in Illinois and one in Ohio where in uh, Illinois, a company, uh, senior executives paid the Speaker of the House of Illinois to get certain legislation through. Uh, In Ohio, it's only allegations that no one has pled guilty yet. But we have huge domestic corruption, and we have huge U.S. domestic uh, ethical challenges uh, that, that you have talked about. The thing that those strikes me, Kevin, is none of these happen in a vacuum. Uh, someone just doesn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to go sleep with my personal assistant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were signs all along. There was, you know, inappropriate behavior all along. And um, the and that's why the importance of evaluating personnel from an ethical and compliance standard as part of a, a annual review. Uh, it can be reflected in a discretionary bonus at the end of the year. Uh, but if you see people who, uh, things that may start out, you know, every fraudster doesn't start out as Bernie Madoff. It's a lot of little steps. And the same is true for unethical behavior or even inappropriate behavior. And if someone just says, stop that, we don't, we don't allow that here. Or I find your comment offensive. Uh, you, you hopefully can, can stop it there. Um, uh, the best example is the, uh, the fellow from the New Yorker, I think it was, uh, Jeff Klein, uh, but I may have his name wrong. He, he may did an incredibly inappropriate thing on a Zoom call. I think that was Jeffrey Tubin, wasn't it? Yeah, Jeffrey Tubin. Sorry, yeah. and um, uh, and it just it stunned me that someone would be that stupid on a Zoom call. Well, it turned out that he'd had several uh, sexual harassment lawsuits filed against him and settled uh, over the years, so that he you know, had engaged in inappropriate behavior, but he got overlooked because he was a star writer and reporter. And um, so um, those, that type of background shows up and that's why continued vigilance from a corporation, uh, this is not, you know, in in intrusive or obtrusive Stasi tactics, it's inappropriate behavior at the office. And if you see it, and uh, uh, an executive should not be then uh, elevated or promoted to senior management if they've engaged in that. Doesn't mean somebody can't make a mistake. It doesn't mean somebody can't make a mistake and get training or uh, other communication or, or even discipline. Um, that That's all a part of a, an active best practices ethics and compliance program. But if you see that type of behavior uh, manifest itself in, in something that uh, 
violates the law or is completely inappropriate, I think that uh, uh, it didn't come out of, of just nowhere. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, Tom. And as you know, I talk frequently on the personal characteristics and circumstances leading to unethical behavior. And I just, so, so to those who have not heard it before, I use the acronym ethics. So let me just uh, briefly go through that and you'll probably be able to recognize this in some of the executives that we've talked about um, so far in the show. But exaggerated ego, which is very, very common in the upper echelons of American business, but it could even be somebody's um, a little bit less, like, you know, their stuff doesn't stink, you know, type, um, type thing. It's just they think they can get away with it, but exaggerated ego. You see those people who think they can get away with anything because they always have. T is temptation, which is also really the opportunity. So people, um, people are gonna act based on temptation or opportunity. H is hijacked by outside pressures, which we have quite a bit right now with, we talked about the work from home and then as well as making numbers. We may also have um, being able to open up supply, um, supply lines or um, be able to pass product tests, those type of pressures like we have with Volkswagen, you know, for example and with Cadillac for that, um, for that matter. And, you know, Theranos is a perfect example of that. Um, the I is integrity failures. And this is again, integrity failures primarily with the people who you work with. Because again, we have a chance, we, we model those people quite a bit. So if the people that we work with um, have no integrity or are lacking integrity, then that happens to rub off on us quite a bit. And then C is consequences not considered. These people just do not believe that they're going to lose their job or they can go to prison, that they'll actually get caught, that there's not a price to pay for their action. Well, you know, bad behavior is almost always found out. You know, it is almost always found out and people just don't realize it. Um, S is what I call stinking or slippery thinking, which is I will never get caught everybody's doing it, everybody in my business is doing this. You can think of a hundred different um, things that you can lie, ways to lie to yourself in order to be able to justify what you can be able to do. But even now the work from home is even, um, you know, you can see where that opens up, you know, now where people may feel like they're not being treated fairly. And so they may be more apt to um, do an, un, um, an unethical act just because they feel they're not being treated fairly or they're not being able to get the pats on the pats on the back and say, hey, look, um, I could probably get away from this from working while I'm working from home. And by the way, I deserve it. You know, let me take take that in, in uh, your idea or the, your comment, rather, that uh, they think they can get away with it and turn it just uh, maybe 25 percent. Here's my observation from. I won't say how many years, but a lot of years of working. Everyone always knows. Everyone knows who those guys are. Right. Everyone, uh, uh, everyone knows, uh, the women know. They know who not to get on an elevator with alone. Um, they know who to watch out for at parties. And all the guys know. Everybody always knows who those people are. But no one ever says anything. Well, now... Uh, I think for me, the biggest change in the, the Me Too brought about was previously it was a responsibility of the, the person who got harassed, typically the woman, to say something. Well, now it's not just her responsibility. It's my responsibility if I see it. And I, I think that was a huge change. I think it's an incredibly important change. But, um, you know, all of that conduct, everybody always knew. And, well, take a look uh, at it, Tom. I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but the Harvey Weinstein, I mean, everybody in Hollywood knew that guy was betting every young actress he could possibly get his hands on. And the casting couch has always been an inside joke in Hollywood. But it was the Hollywood folks that came out um, so much on the Me Too movement. But for so long, all those same people kept their mouth shut. They weren't the one who exposed um, Harvey Weinstein. It was a young. It was a young actress who really brought it out, um, you know, um, initially, and then everyone kind of piled in after the fact. They joined. They joined the train once it got started. 
But I guarantee you, if all those high paid actors and actresses years and years ago had called out Harvey Weinstein on that, um, this would not have been the same issue in such a short period of time that it, that it really was. But they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to get blackballed in that industry. And I'm sure it's the same in a lot of companies. They don't want to be blackballed in their own company. I'm sure that's what happens quite a bit. Kevin, can I maybe turn to, instead of work from home, return to work? Yes, I thought that was, you, you sent me that little email. I love that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> so, and I've been thinking about this one a lot uh, because of the controversies around the vaccine. The EEOC has now said companies can require employees to be vaccinated. Um, so what does that mean for your company? Are you going to enforce that? Uh, is this different than measles or mumps or really any other communicable disease? Um, are you going to require a verified shot card or, or a record of, of a, a vaccination? Uh, now an employee doesn't want to get a shot, whether that's a political statement, whether that's a religious statement, whether it's something else, whether it's a medical condition that they can't take this vaccine. Um, and are you going to accept that? Are you going to put your other employees at risk? Are you going to tell your other employees that we have had Tom Fox refuses to take a vaccine? We've had one person refuse to take a vaccine. We've had X percent of our workforce refuse to take a vaccine. Uh, why haven't you seen Tom in the office for the last six months? Well, he's under a work from home regime. Uh, what does that communicate? Um, so I've been thinking about that from the ethical perspective uh, quite a bit and, uh, and you know, then now take it to travel. Or can you travel domestically? Can you travel internationally? United has said they're going to require a, a proof of vaccination. Um, is that going to be true for hotels or, or other kind of public places that get a lot of disparate traffic through? Um, could we have a, you know, a shot card for just going into a, a commercial establishment? I don't pretend to know the answers to these, but these are ethical challenges that I think many are going to um, uh, have to work through, uh, particularly employers. I agree with that. And um, this, this whole subject is actually very near and dear to my heart. I'm one of those guys that's at extremely high risk um, if I was to contract um, COVID. And um, to me, to go back to the office, and I've um, been um, self-quarantining um, through most of um, the last nine months now, is um, just because I've just been real super careful because I don't want to be able to contract it and with my heart disease, I had a stroke a year ago and I just have a bunch of issues. And if I was to walk into an office and I was expecting everyone to be vaccinated, I think it'd be fair and I think it's the right thing to do is just to warn me that, hey, there are some people around here who, are, um, who have not been vaccinated. And if you are at high risk, then you know, we suggest either you don't come into the office or you wear a mask or we'll do whatever we can to accommodate you because it, then it becomes almost another ADA issue, really. Um, you know, how do you, how do you address those people who are very high, um, high risk? So Tom, I think that you bring up a really good point there. And, and let's just uh, go on this thread a little bit further. Uh, does a company, if a company says something, have they now identified you as high risk when you didn't want to be identified to your coworkers? Do you want your coworkers to know about your past medical history? Do you want your coworkers to know potentially about your parents' medical history that may put you at risk for certain for certain uh, diseases or other conditions? And it really, uh, uh, or um, this happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I'd asked to uh, to go uh, present to a board of directors uh, as a as a compliance expert. And my first question is, well, uh, can we do this on Zoom? Like, well, no, the, the, the chairman wants to do this in person. I'm like, okay, uh, do you require masks in the office? Yes, we do. Okay, is, are we going to be wearing masks in the board meeting? Well, yes, we are. I was like, okay. I felt reasonably comfortable around that. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, you might not, or another person might not, and uh, without additional information. So uh, what's that going to do to your external or outward facing 
public persona as opposed to all of this dialogue we've been having about the intern. Yeah, well, I mean, as far as, you know, I think um, the ethical duties of uh, companies to their employees, I mean, the highest ethical duty to my, in my opinion, is uh, maintain the, um, the health and safety of, um, of your employees. So whatever that means for that company, I think that's, um, I think it's a very high ethical duty of the company to be able to pursue that. I mean, that's just part of honest, honesty and transparency, um, care, um, concern, and you have to, that's gotta be done in a way that's empathetic to that person's, um, you know, physical, um, physical condition. You know, Kevin, you may have actually just given me a very good nugget or idea, and it's the following. So I'm in Houston. I've spent almost all of my professional career uh, as a lawyer with or for the energy industry, either as private practice or in in-house counsel. And in the energy industry, basically since the Exxon Valdez, every company has said safety is our number one priority. Well, why can't we say health and safety are our number one priority? It would seem to me that everything you just articulated about health is it's just another definition, another way to define safety. So maybe that's a message that would uh, resonate. If we're going to say safety is our number one priority, why can't we say health and safety is our number one priority? Well, I think that might be a change. We'll, um, we'll see. We'll create a movement on that time, won't we? <laughs> That'll be our movement going, going forward. <laughs> it is health and safety. I think that is, um, I think just think it's really, really important. And I think, um, you know, going back to how the companies are viewed on the, by the outside world, um, you know, I think, that, you know, people understand that. I mean, I know that when I get on a customer support number now, and I have that um, that um, phone message that plays back to me and says, you may experience a longer wait because the safety, the health and safety of our employees is very important. So we're all working from home and just taking longer to pick up the phone calls. I mean, it doesn't bother me at all if I got to wait an extra couple of minutes, if that means that whoever is on the other side of the line is um, is healthy or staying healthy because of it. No, that's absolutely right. So anyway, I know we have um, some people on the line. What I'm going to do is I'm going to unmute um, everybody that's in the Zoom room here and give everybody an opportunity maybe to ask either Tom or I a question. And if there's no questions, then we'll go on to our, our next subject. But I'm going to go ahead and unmute everybody now and just pop in as you may. Okay, so anybody wants to talk, you can just go ahead and unmute themselves at this point. Anybody have any questions? All right. Everyone's pretty quiet out there. So um, just feel free to pop in anytime, um, anytime you want. Um, so um, Tom, what, um, what challenges um, do you think these chief compliance officers are gonna have um, making that, they're, they're making the transition now on, on the work from home and then they have to make a second transition on the return to uh, return to work. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on these folks, aren't there? Uh, there is, and um, the return to work, at, it's not going to be somebody turns a switch on and everybody goes back. It's going to be some form of gradual or graduated return. Um, I guess my favorite story is uh, a major energy company in Houston is planning to return to work. And I asked, I was talking to the chief compliance officer and they're in a multi-story you know, office building downtown. And I said, well, um, how many people are they gonna let in the elevator in the morning? And he said, well, four. And I said, what's that gonna be like? He said, we've been told to prepare for a 15 to 30 minute wait to get from the ground floor to our office floor. Wow. 
And so um, I'm sometimes I'm patient and sometimes I'm not. And if I have to start the morning waiting for 30 minutes for an elevator, I'm not sure what mood that's going to put me in for the rest of the day. So just things like that, thinking about uh, your, your point about, you know, we, we as, a, as I think as a, as a country have, have cut, more, cut more slack this year because of COVID-19, is that going to continue? So are you going to be able to be able to keep those sort of uh, ethical values and cultural norms when you have challenges like, well, gosh, I had to wait 30 minutes um, to get an elevator ride. Does that mean I need to leave the house and even 30 minutes earlier uh, to get there? Things like, is that now part of my commute? So something as simple or straightforward that, that we've all taken for granted, um, something like that. But the, the regulatory changes that you and I talked about, coupled with the other changes uh, have have created uh, more responsibility for the chief compliance officer, uh, more responsibility to look at risk, to measure that risk, to manage that risk, and then incorporate those risks into your ethics and compliance program going forward. But it's also, I think, Kevin, uh, gives us some opportunities. It gives us some real opportunities. The, the, the fact that you may have to communicate with employees in smaller groups or, or more one-on-one on, one on one via Zoom, that may actually benefit you as the chief compliance officer. Uh, we both worked in, in large organizations. And if you think back to a time when, when you were a, a younger employee or even a newbie, uh, how often did a senior exec call you personally uh, or come by your office personally? Uh, you know, if you fouled up, maybe you got hauled in, <laughs> but, uh, even for me, it was typically, I got hauled into middle management, you know, if I made a, mis- uh, a grievous mistake. So maybe there's an opportunity there, but there's certainly an opportunity to look at risks more closely and manage risks more closely from the regulatory perspective. What they want to see is, uh, if you've ever heard me talk, you know, I say the three most important things about any ethics and compliance program anywhere in the world are the following document, 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 whatever you do, document it. Because if you don't document it, when the regulators come knocking, they'll assume it never happened. So you must document your steps that you've taken. And if you document so that you have an audit trail, not only does that protect you when the regulators come, but the beauty of it is from a business process perspective is number one, it allows a second set of eyes uh, or uh, to, to look at any process and any process engineer or any process manager will tell you, you have to have oversight to validate any process. So one, you get internal validation of your process, but two, you have an audit trail that then you can use to improve going forward so that you have, uh, and this is really not how lawyers think. So uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a much more of a business focused process. So for compliance and ethics professionals, I think, having that business process focus will lead you to uh, a more robust ethics and compliance program, an auditable program that's documented if the regulator's coming. And at the end of the day, I think it will make your business processes more efficient. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's also going to make it more personal as you're, as you're saying, I think that once we're able to um, almost flatten the organizational structure on communication, the better off the company's going to be. Um, so they'll make sure all the messages are getting directly to, um, to um, everyone rather than just being filtered down through 20, la- um, 20 layers of management. And so this is a new opportunity for us really to be able to um, um, more associate on more um, you know, human to human terms, I think, where we could really be able to feel what's going on with other individuals and that, that are, are our coworkers and be able to have this type of open communication, this honesty. And I agree with you as far as documenting everything goes, but it needs to also make sure that it's heart to heart and um, that everybody's just feeling, you know, feeling the, I, <laughs> I don't want to use, sure, I don't want to use the word, the word love, but I just want to be able, be able to feel that they are being accepted and welcome within that organization and that, um, that these messages are being driven down, that part of this corporate culture is this, um, 
is um, is this responsibility that we have towards your um, your health and health and safety, and you need to do your part as well because you have coworkers here who are dependent on you for your health and safety in order for them to be health, um, healthy and safety as well. So I think it's I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity here. I really do. So the, uh, the other thing, Kevin, and this may be actually a little more in your wheelhouse, is there's been a movement, I think, in the compliance community to actually rename a chief compliance officer or even a chief ethics and compliance officer to a chief integrity officer. And um, there's just a handful of companies that have started that. And I've talked literally uh, enough that I could, all, I could talk to them all. And in talking to them all, uh, they said um, the company wanted to put the title and the word integrity in their title because they thought that was a, a statement of their values. Uh, they also, and that was not simply an internal statement, it was external focusing as well, so that other stakeholders would see that this was a core value of, of the company in question, whether the stakeholders were shareholders, whether they were customers, whether they were third parties doing business uh, through the supply chain, or whether even local uh, localities where the company was doing business. So uh, that is one change that uh, we may see a little bit more of. And I think that's um, part of a, a growing trend, uh, really in, in a variety of corporate disciplines, in internal audit, in uh, finance, in accounting, uh, to see risk management. It, it's not compliance risk management. It's not ethics and compliance risk management. It's risk management so that you have a variety of risks and they're not siloed and a company can evaluate those risks and move nimbly and agilely um, when a risk changes. So we talked about what happened in March and April and certainly risks changed with working from home. Well, now, uh, as we record this in, in December, um, what about uh, PPE or personal protective equipment? Are you obtaining that for your workers? If so, who are you buying it from? Is it a regular supplier? Uh, if it's not a regular supplier, did you sole source it? Uh, kind of all the standard business practices we think about in the supply chain or procurement, um, have there been exceptions granted? Uh, what happens if the uh, uh, supplier supplies you with defective products because they're new to this game? Um, or uh, if, we, if I could add another level of, of sophistication or, or, or uh, challenge, what if they're in a country that suddenly becomes uh, on a sanctions list uh, because the administration has, has trade, changed trade sanctions? What are you going to do if, if that happens? So uh, really things that um, I really do like the phrase business as usual, uh, that, that's a business as usual issue now, although it's in the middle of a pandemic. And something you probably never had to think about before. So, Tom, the chief integrity officer is that um, is that replacing the chief ethics officer, or the, is it from a functional standpoint? Are they doing the same thing, or just is it a title change only, or how is it different? It's a it's a title change and designed to bring, uh, particularly if the title is chief compliance officer, to bring a, a greater eth ethical based values into the role of compliance and to recognize that it's not compliance, it's not even uh, uh, perhaps even CECO, it's, it's integrity as well. Right. That's all been very, very interesting. Well, Tom, this has been a really good um, discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, we were just about um, out of time here. Um, well, I wanna chat with you for a couple of minutes when we get, uh, when we get through. But one thing I do want to say as we um, um, wrap up here, um, this episode has been brought to you by Business Ethics Advisors, where we have um, programs that are actually clued in to be able to help out companies in some of the discussions that we've talked about today, um, ethical leadership um, training, weekly videos to keep um, ethics at the top of your employee's mind, um, you know, keynote, um, keynotes um, for um, talking about values-based um, ethics. These are all things that are important to companies right now. And um, if you have an interest, 
please check out my website at businessethicsadvisors.com. Tom, thank you very much for being with us um, today. I really, really appreciate it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm pleased to announce that the latest podcast series in the Compliance Podcast Network, The Wirecard Saga, has premiered. Originally, it was on the FCPA Compliance Report, but due to its popularity, I have rolled it into its own podcast series. Subscribe to it on the Compliance Podcast Network. It will be out on iTunes the first week in December, so subscribe to the iTunes version of the Wirecard Saga. We're going to take this as long as we can. I know you'll enjoy it. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.